Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was in seminary, I had a year-long pastoral internship at a very large congregation. The congregation had over 1,200 members and nine pastors. So as one intern there, I was surely not going to get to know all of the persons, members of the congregation, nor were they going to know me. But one day I was encouraged and in fact told that I was to offer pastoral care to a woman who was in the hospital literally dying. She was in her early 90s. I had never met her before, but she was there and um, was unconscious, had tubes in her throat and um, all sorts of monitors hooked up to her. And the doctors had predicted that she would probably die within the next 24 hours. And so my supervising pastor told me that I should go be with her. I always love internships because you can't say no to such things. And I thought, well, what am I supposed to do with this woman? She couldn't talk. She didn't even know that I was there. Her family wasn't there. I was the only one with her. And so I sat there for a little bit just praying quietly to myself. And then suddenly I pulled out my Bible and I thought I can at least read scripture aloud to her. And I thought, well, which scripture do you read? And in my panic, the only scripture that I could think of was Psalm 23, the passage that Sheldon read for us this morning. And I read in an odd sort of way to this woman who was lying there lifelessly. And I didn't say it too loudly because I felt kind of awkward saying words aloud, reading to her. It's awkward to speak to someone like this, but I did. I, in fact, read Psalm 23 to her a number of times. The Lord is my shepherd, I told her. Psalm 23 is perhaps the most popular psalm in the Bible, and in fact, it's probably the most popular passage in the entire Bible. In some ways, it's helpful for us to hear this psalm read to us. Again, it brings comfort and reassurance. And I imagine that most of us have memorized it at some point. Not all of us, but some point in our lives. And so when we hear it in times of distress, or especially at times of a funeral, it kind of brings back those comforting memories that comes when we hear memorized texts, especially texts that offer us words of comfort. And yet, to hear these words that are so familiar to so many of us, What do you say that's new about it? How do you find a fresh approach to the Lord is my shepherd? Most often, Psalm 23 comes to mind in funerals. We hear it read, many people want it read, appropriately so, as a text for their funeral. But the New Interpreter's Bible Commentary says, while many of us think of this psalm as one that is appropriate at funerals, it's also a psalm about living. For it puts daily activities such as eating and drinking and seeking security in a radically God-centered perspective that challenges our usual way of thinking. This week, 
I was sitting with a group of people as we were reading some of the lectionary texts for this week. And as we heard, most of them had to do with sheep and shepherds. And one of the persons said probably what all of us had thought at some point in our life. You know, I get tired as a human hearing that we as humans are referred to as sheep in the Bible. Because sheep, well, they're not really well known for their intelligence. And in some ways, that's very true. But the use of the analogy of shepherds and sheep in the Bible goes beyond this understanding that the sheep, a.k.a. the humans, are the dumb ones. In the ancient ancient world, kings were actually known as shepherds over their people. And so to say that the Lord is my shepherd is a radical declaration to one's loyalty to God as Lord of life, to living under God's reign is a proclamation that is stated when I say the Lord is my shepherd. It was, after all, the responsibility of the kings to protect and to provide for the people, but as we know, they frequently failed. And so in contrast to the failure of the earthly kings, God does what a shepherd is supposed to do, what kings were supposed to do. They were, the shepherd was supposed to provide life and security for these people. Now, verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 23 offer us those words of tranquility and calmness that we're so used to, making us lie down in green pastures, leading us beside those still waters. You see, for sheep to lie down in green pastures means to have plenty of good food in front of them. To be led by still waters means to have something refreshing to drink at all times. And to be led in the right paths means danger will be avoided and that proper shelter will be available when needed. In short, when God restores my soul, one can better translate it in saying, God keeps me alive. Now, shepherds in the Middle East were said to have used the expression in their shepherding to set the table. They would set the table for their sheep. And when they did this, that meant that they were preparing the fields for their sheep for grazing. And that often meant going ahead of the sheep and pulling out any poisonous weeds that were in the fields. It also meant clearing the area of any sheep's enemies, such as snakes or scorpions' nests that they might find that would come up and attack the sheep. And in the evening, as the sheep were being corralled back in to their shepherd, the shepherd would notice if one or multiple ones of them were injured or sickly. And those sheep were separated by the shepherd, and they were treated with oil. And a curative drink made of fermented material and herbs sweetened with honey. There were lots of shepherds in Jesus' time. It was a common occupation. And so perhaps to pass their lonely times out in the fields, the shepherds would often name their sheep. Each one had a name. And even though the sheep were not known and still not known as the most intelligent of all animals, each sheep would know its shepherd's voice. In the evening, the shepherd could call them by name. 
and the sheep would gather in the large pen, which would keep them safe from wolves and thieves. The role of sheep is perhaps less important than the role of shepherd in our passages that were read today. In John 10, that Naomi read for us, Jesus is saying that he is, in fact, the good shepherd. He's saying that no matter what, I am here for you to provide leadership, food, protection, and that Jesus' overall purpose is to sustain life. When Psalm 23 provides a radically, it, what Psalm 23 provides is a profoundly radical implication to the treacherous life that sheep often face. God is with us, but God is not ours to own. The God who shepherds us to life also gives life to the world. The table at which we are hosted by God is one to which the whole world is invited. The first time I met Ron, I wasn't too pleased. Not this Ron. I was very pleased the first time I met that Ron. The first time I met my neighbor Ron, I wasn't pleased. In fact, I was probably downright nervous. Ron isn't your most typical, upstanding-looking citizen. In fact, most of the time that I saw Ron, he was smoking, standing on the French sidewalk, seemingly loitering, I think is the word that Lisa uses to describe him, in front of our house and his house. And Ron can kind of just give you the heebie-jeebies, that you're not quite sure what he's up to. I didn't quite figure out at first if Ron actually lived at the house or whether it was his girlfriend who lived at the house or who was living with whom. And Well, anyway, it wasn't really important except that I knew that Ron was around an awful lot. And because our homes are well-connected, I felt pretty close to Ron physically. And over time, I kind of got a little bit more used to seeing Ron around And over time, he would begin to comment to me about the weather or an upcoming holiday, what food we might be eating. And I would quickly respond to Ron's comments about the weather or about Easter ham, and then I would quickly go inside my house for safety. But Ron was always there. No matter what time of the day, it seemed like Ron was outside smoking his cigarette, just hanging out offering me a friendly hello when I allowed it. I had seen evidence of drug activity in my neighbor's yard and in my front of their house, the house which Ron frequented, and I didn't always, in fact, feel comfortable either with the people that I saw Ron hanging out with. They weren't, after all, the most upright-looking citizens either. And when they came and went from the house next door, I would feel even less safe, being kind of glad that I was inside at the moment. And so I was skeptical of Ron and his friends, and I found myself actually trying to avoid them whenever possible. I had wished for a shepherd to come and protect me from my neighbor, Ron. In the backdrop of our shepherd, imagery this morning, we also read 
from Acts, one of the first stories in the book of Acts. We read about Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. Now, I don't know if many of you picked this up, but this story comes right after Peter and John went to pray. He met a layman on the way. And what it was because of Peter and John's healing of this man, they were brought before this trial, before the Sanhedrin. And so now you've all got that tune running through your head, and you remember what Peter and John did. And this was very, very soon in the book of Acts, early on. And so here were Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin, being accused of some very interesting charges. In essence, they were being accused of healing a man. And the man of whom they healed, for whom they healed, was actually there as testimony, as proof of this healing at the trial. And so I wasn't quite sure what the Sanhedrin actually were accusing him of, and actually neither was Peter, if you read his defense. But there they were, Peter and John, in front of Sanhedrin, after having prayed and healed a man and preached, proclaiming to the astonished crowd that the healing was the work of their own God, the God who had raised Jesus from the dead. The temple authorities were not impressed by this theology of resurrection. In fact, one could say that they were offended by this new theology of resurrection because surely by now this Jesus stuff should have died out. I mean, it had been six months since Jesus himself had been on trial. And come on, when are we going to be done with this Jesus dude, this theology of resurrection? Wouldn't it ever leave them? And so they arrested Peter and John, hoping that this would put an end to it. And in fact, Peter's words here is the first recorded defense speech given by a Christian before religious authorities. The story brings back memories of another man who was brought before the Sanhedrin just about six months prior, accused of charges, too, that didn't really seem to be worthy of charges. He didn't break any laws. And the same man who had challenged the theology of the Sanhedrin was later crucified for doing so. Almost as a foreshadowing of such events, Jesus had warned his disciples in the Gospels that they would be someday brought before the Jewish religious authorities and interrogated. But he had also promised them that when this happened, they should not be anxious. How can you not be anxious when they knew what had happened to Jesus when he was brought in front of the same group? But Jesus said, that they should not be anxious about how they should, would react or what they would say because the Holy Spirit would give them words. And Peter in Acts 4 didn't seem anxious at all. Wait a minute, this is Peter. This is the same guy who, who was sort of known for misspeaking who would often say things without thinking a lot of times, who would often say things that really should not have been said, who would often 
speak far too much when really he should have kept his mouth closed. This was the same Peter who six months before had denied Jesus as the Messiah, not once, not twice, but three times. This same Peter was on trial before the very same group of religious leaders that had convicted and killed Jesus. And yet this time, it was not the same Peter. With power and energy and clarity, Peter responds to the Sanhedrin's accusations in a tactical way that actually reminds us of the wise ways in which Jesus would often respond to such accusations. Peter had the words to say and the words to explain, the words to proclaim the power of God through Jesus Christ, that it was, in fact, the power, Peter explained, that he and John were doing these healings and preaching these things in the name of the resurrected Lord. Before the council facing a more overt and serious threat than the mere recognition that made him melt as the crock, as the cock crowed that Thursday night six months prior, Peter now is unflinching. He boldly proclaims the name of Jesus. He unapologetically points the finger at those who opposed him, and he declares the gospel truth that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Now, three weeks ago, we celebrated in this building, in this place, or sometimes other places, Easter and the resurrection If we think we know the story of resurrection and then that's done, that's over with three weeks ago, reading Acts 4 reminds us that we have something else coming. See, resurrection keeps happening over and over and over again. And today's story in Acts is a case in point. William Willimon says, resurrection is not just something that happened to dead Jesus. But resurrection is something that happens to the followers of Jesus. Not just someday, but today. Resurrection happens. Resurrection had happened for Peter. The man who could have hid in shame, embarrassed at the way he denied Jesus. Shameful of the way he did it three different times, just as Jesus predicted. But instead... There was the same man, Peter, declaring boldly to the power of the resurrection that is proof of resurrection in Peter's life. Peter is proof of the power of the Holy Spirit that can fill ordinary people's lives with extraordinary power. About two years ago, I was walking home from work And I glanced up to see my neighbor's porch full of three men smoking cigarettes of whom I had seen around the place a few other times. And Ron was nowhere to be found. And so I quickly, with a woman on a mission look, walked quickly by by their porch heading towards my home. And as soon as I rounded the corner, they started making comments, inappropriate comments, Comments I had no desire to hear coming from them. And so I ignored them. 
But before the final comment even came out of my one neighbor's mouth, I heard the, the screen door of my neighbor's home slam shut. And there was Ron standing at his friends, staring at them, snapping, Don't talk to her like that! I looked up at Ron, and he quickly, sincerely apologized to me for his friend's comments. And then the, the friends began to apologize to, oh man, sorry, we didn't know. And I just walked into my house. About a year and a half ago, I had two men working on some, doing some work in my house. And I was gone during the day. And so one evening when I came home, I checked in with them to see how they were doing and checked on the status of their work. And one of the, the workmen asked me about my next-door neighbor. And I knew by his description that he was talking about Ron. And I said, oh, no, was he bothering you? And the worker said to me, no. Actually, soon after we got started this morning, we were in your backyard using, using that area to do some sawing and some mixing of the cement and things. And... And we weren't even there five minutes. And your neighbor poked his head up around the fence and started striking up a conversation with us. And I said, what did he talk about? And he said, you know, it was really com comfortable conversation. But what I realized soon after he started talking wasn't so much that he was interested in our conversation. He was checking to make sure that we were legit. He was checking to make sure that these two strange men who were in his neighbor's backyard was, were appropriate. He was keeping an eye out for you, Sue. He saw these strange men in his backyard, and he was checking them out for you. Well, Ron and I now have numerous conversations. Every time I walk outside and see Ron standing there smoking... I talked to him, and last Sunday, he was standing out there, as I was, or two Sundays ago, as I was leaving for church, and he saw I was all dressed up, and he said, you heading to church? And I said, sure am, are you? <laughs> and he goes, oh, no, no, no. And I said, you should come with me, Ron. You can come to my church. And he goes, hmm, not today. But Ron and I have become friends now. We enjoy talking to each other. And even some of his friends, I've, I've become friends with the other week. I was walking out at night uh, carrying my recycling bin, and all of a sudden in the dark, one of his friends turned the corner and just like was right there with his long black coat. And I kind of yelled just because I was fear. And the guy felt so badly that he insisted he take my recycling bin out to the corner and come back and make sure I was okay. He must have apologized ten times. Ma'am, ma'am, I didn't try to scare you. I didn't try to scare you. I didn't know you were there. They really do care about me. And resurrection has happened in my life. It didn't happen with Ron and his friends. In fact, when I think about it, their behavior didn't change at all. 
The resurrection has occurred in my attitude towards them. Like the Sanhedrin, I was too quick to judge by the company they kept and the assumptions about their actions. But I'm grateful that over time, I've let my eyes see them in new ways so that I can enjoy the relationship that I have with Ron, with people who may be quite different from me, but also my neighbors, people who care about me. People change. Peter is proof of the power of the resurrection that causes people to change. Ron didn't change, but I changed in how I saw him. And while we celebrate and honor the ways that people change to encourage Jesus' power to be made evident, the passages that we read today about the shepherd and the sheep also remind us that one thing does not change, and that is the deep love that a shepherd has for the sheep. We change, we love, we care, not because of who we are, but because of the love that God has given to us. We all need a shepherd, a shepherd who does not change, who offers us safety and shelter, protection, and deep love, who calls us each by name. And when we are reminded of the shepherd who does not change, who constantly offers us peace and comfort amidst our everyday realities, we can experience resurrection. Earlier, I had talked about the older woman who was in the hospital to whom I had read Psalm 23 during my internship. Although all of us, including her doctors and family, had expected her to die that very day, she didn't. She hung on. And amazingly, to everyone's astonishment, including her own, a few weeks later, she was at home, living back in her apartment, comfortable and doing quite well. My supervising pastor thought it would be helpful if I went to visit her, and introduced myself. So I went to visit her one day on my own, and I commented to her how amazing it was to see her three weeks later in this state after having seen her in the hospital. And then I said, you probably don't even really know who I am. And so I introduced myself and explained to her that I had visited her in the hospital a few weeks ago on the day that they had predicted that she would die. She said right away, yes. I know you visited me. I didn't know who you were at the time, but now that I hear your voice again, I definitely remember you. You read Psalm 23 to me a number of times, and it was so beautiful. Those were the words that I needed to hear that day in the hospital. Resurrection happens in all of our lives. God seeks us out as a shepherd seeks out lost sheep. God calls us by our very own names. God summons us to follow as sheep follow the good shepherd. Today we are called to follow in the power of the resurrection and to share that power with others because God has shared it with us.
through Jesus Christ. Amen.